Would you take your Bible with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, and the first chapter. We are celebrating Advent with a spirit-led joy and anticipation. And so today, we will study John's prologue, the opening 18 verses of the Gospel of John. And uh, I, I shared with you last week that the Advent is a celebration, an anticipation of the arrival of a notable person, thing, a coming event. Well, that person is the eternal God. And that thing is him coming from God as a prophet. That's a messenger from God. Coming to stand in the place of sinners. The event is the Messiah bringing peace and goodwill to sinners, to men. We will learn, Lord willing, this week and next week, that this prophet from God functioning as a priest at Calvary, will be the eternal king forever. And so we celebrate the Advent. Look with me, please, at John chapter 1. Let's read read 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Our minds are provoked to a certain curiosity. Who is this capital W word that is said to be God himself. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he did come to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Amazingly, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. For our time this morning, this is where we'll be setting our attention. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's this parenthetical statement to help us think clearly. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, he, comes after, he who comes after me is before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You can be seated, and children, uh, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Celebrating the Advent is an anticipation, a celebration of God dwelling among us. There's an important reality of what the incarnation makes possible. God taking on flesh, dwelling with us, means that there is a place, a meeting place, between God and man. There is a place where we can go and be in fellowship and in union with holy God. That place is a tent, a tent of dwelling. It is Jesus, the place where sinners and God are united. The title for the sermon is The Eternal Glory of the Son Revealed. For this celebration, it seems really appropriate. I've often gone to the book of John during Advent. It seems really appropriate to go into John's prologue. What that means is these first 18 verses. This is sort of a thesis statement of what John's going to write. Don Carson said, these 18 verses would be a very full seminary class. These 18 verses. This is one of the most elevated statements about Jesus that we find in the New Testament. John's gospel, I don't know if you know this, John's gospel doesn't fall in the category of synoptic. In other words, a synonym. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synonymous. There's so much similarity. There's a lot of conversation about did they use each other's gospel to write their own gospel. John's gospel is distinct, though. John has a unique passion for the people of God to believe with full assurance that Jesus is the Christ. That's what John wants. And he wants that on a sort of, I want to use the word familial level. John is the apostle that Jesus loved. There's this unique relationship between John and Jesus on earth. And John really wants all of those people of God to know with full assurance that Jesus is the Messiah. He says that at the end of his book. In John 20, verse 31, John says this. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. John wanted God's people to be positive. Jesus is that Christ. So for our sermon today, the word from eternity past became flesh. And in that revelation, we know grace and truth. So the word became flesh, we know grace and truth. God the Father, God the Son, summed up in grace and truth. Let's pray before we start studying those two points. Lord Father, would you please lead 
in the piercing work of Scripture so that our joy would abound and that this good passion of your servant John, that all of your people would know with full assurance that this Jesus from Nazareth, born in humility, is the Messiah, the promised one. The one name given to all of your creation whereby men may be saved. And so, Father, build our joy as the church and draw people to yourself as Christ is declared as the way, the truth, and the life. That today would be a day of salvation for those that are lost, dead in their trespasses and sin. So we pray for the preaching of your word. We are dependent now as both speaker and listener. And we're thankful to be dependent. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Number one, the eternal word becomes flesh in verse 14. This is the most conscious statement to this point about incarnation. Right now, John's going to say, here's what the previous verses have been all about. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. The word became flesh. John doesn't say the word started. John doesn't even say the word became man. John says what had already been now took on something more. What had been took on something. The word did not stop being anything, but started being something extra. Some people have sometimes asked about a passage in Philippians 2, 7 that says Christ emptied himself and became servant-like in his incarnation. He emptied himself. What does it mean that Christ empties himself? I would invite you to think about Christ's incarnation as being a subtraction by addition. A subtraction by addition. In other words, when Christ took on the next nature, another nature, with all of its human limitations, he didn't stop being divine and deity. He didn't postpone that nature. But that nature took on another lesser nature like ours. And therefore, limitation. Subtraction by addition. (laughs) In one short, dynamic expression, John unveils the great idea at the heart of Christianity. The Word, God, took on flesh to be of us to worship the Father in our place unto death and for our atonement. That's at the heart of Christianity. The eternal God himself 
came as a substitute to stand in our place and worship the Father unto death. This this is the substitute righteousness for the fundamental sin of humanity. Jesus took on flesh to worship the Father. John 17, the Garden of Gethsemane, Romans 1. The problem that we have is a worship omission. You want to know about the nature of sin? Like, what's wrong with us? Worship omission. What's wrong with us is not foremost what we do wrong, it's what we don't do right. We, we, could, we could focus on all the stuff we do wrong and try to get people to stop doing stuff wrong. At the heart of obedience is what we do right when we worship God. Jesus came and stood in our place. The Word took on flesh and worshipped the Father unto death in our place and for our atonement. Now, listen closely. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The problem is we're overexposed to that. God put skin on and was born in a cow stall. And the church goes, ah, yes, Christmas. We're overexposed. But listen, right there, right there, what we have right now is demon theology. Jesus of Nazareth, he's eternal, co-equal with God. In the beginning, he was there already. Because he himself is eternal. And he put skin on and he came to earth. And whenever he had a conversation with a demon, the demon confessed, you are the word become flesh. You're the righteous judge. You could send me prematurely to my eternal torment if that's what you will. So see, all we have at this point is a confession in our head similar to what a demon would confess. Which, by the way, you don't understand that language is coming from James. James says, if you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe there's one God and they're afraid of him. So, so we can go beyond that. Because it's not just us agreeing that things from the Bible happened in history. That is not our point. So let's look at the words dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, this is beautiful word picture. Now follow me, okay? Because this was really joyful to study, and I want it to be joyful to hear, but it might be harder to hear than it was to study. Dwelt among us is, is a word that implies to put a tent with. The word dwelt among us would be translated, the word became flesh, and tabernacled with us. I am not a multicultural Bible student. Maybe you relate to this. When I read John 1.14, where it became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father. I think, manger. 
Bethlehem. Star. Because I don't have multicultural background. But when John wrote to the people of God, wanting them to know who Jesus was, John didn't say, oh yeah, uh, the baby's born. That's not the first thing he said. The first thing he said is, God took on flesh and tabernacled with us. And that audience went, oh my. Like his glory, his Shekinah glory, like the, the, the glory of the tabernacle and the temple. Jesus is God with us. That's Jesus. Jewish ears would understand the place of worship during the wandering of Israel between Moses and King David. The place where God vouchsafes his presence in the tabernacle. He says, this ark, this tabernacle, and eventually this temple is signed that I will be with you. I will be the meeting place between man and God. Now verse 17, John chapter 1 verse 17, glance at it. We get a hint that John's thinking back to tabernacle. Because he brings up Moses. Like, I understand bringing up John the Baptist, the forerunner. But all of a sudden, here's Moses. Why bring up Moses? Because what we didn't see is what they saw. John just said, think like the tabernacle. And so in verse 17, we get a picture that John's pointing to something. That something is Exodus 33. Exodus 33 and 34. Magnificent, magnificent interaction between a Moses whose faith was dwindling. Moses basically says, listen, these people I'm walking with in the wilderness are real deadbeats. These are not good people. And he says, I'm pretty sure that if in fact you are a wise and a just God, you're going to bail out here because these people are terrible. And he says, but I'm worried you're going to leave us. Would you prove to me that you're not going to leave us even though we're terrible? That's the conversation. Exodus 33 and its parallels to John 1. Okay, look at John 1.14. The Bible says the word dwelt among us, or as I've just stressed, tented, tabernacled among us. In Exodus 33.7, the Bible says, now Moses set up the tabernacle. Back in John 1 and verse 14, we beheld his glory. Exodus 33, 9. At that tabernacle, there was the Shekinah glory descending on it. Back to John 1, 17. The law was given through Moses. Back in Exodus 33, 11. God gave the law to Moses. Back to John 1, 18. No one has seen God. Exodus 33, 20. You cannot see my face. God tells Moses, John 1, 18. The Son has made him known. Exodus 33, 23. My face will not be seen. John had the tabernacle in mind when he was talking to us about Jesus. John is communicating to us that God made himself more clear than he had at the tabernacle, the ark, or the temple when the word became flesh. God made himself clearer in Revelation 
than he had in all of that Old Testament furniture. This is getting to what? I mean, the Shekinah glory. We have beheld his glory. That's at the heart of this. We have seen his glory. So back in John 1, 14, we've seen his glory. Exodus 40, 34 says, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Boy, when the glory of God descends on a place It was palpable, right? Isaiah. The foundation shakes. The walls rattle. Angels fly around, worshiping mostly and serving. We have seen his glory, the Shekinah glory in Exodus 40-34 in the temple or in the tabernacle. Strahan says this, when the evangelist says we have seen his glory, when John says we have seen his glory, he's saying that the ultimate purpose of God is achieved at incarnation. I was thankful this morning that we read several, we sang several songs that kept the incarnation and the cross in context. Those songs were sung this morning. That was helpful for us. We sang songs about Calvary on the week we anticipate celebrating the Advent. That's good for us. What I want you to understand is that neither the humble, lowly birth of the Messiah nor the cross or even the resurrection are standalone reasons why Jesus came to earth. The standalone reason that all other things come out of is us seeing his glory. The Bible says in Psalm 29.9, all the people in the temple, aware of the presence of the Lord, cry glory, glory. All of the people in the temple cry glory, glory. The glorious dwelling with men, in verse 14, is the one and only, uh, that's like one and only, or um, in John 3 we read uh, that Jesus uh, is the only begotten. That, that word is irreplaceable. Jesus is the, the one who can't be replaced. There's nothing else that could have been made or could have been a stand-in. Irreplaceable. So here it says in verse 14, he is the one and only son from the Father. John wants the reader to believe that Jesus is the place where men and God meet. I love that John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us because there are these corporate undertones about Jesus being the place where we meet with God. Not you, not me. We meet with God there. There are two kinds of word pictures here, like tenting. God comes in the flesh and tents with us. How many of you, you mind if I ask, how many of you like to camp? When the weather's right, you, you like to camp. Would you just show me you enjoy that? Yeah, that's good. I like the idea of camping. I like buying the, the stuff. 
I don't, we even tried, we tried a camper for a while. That wasn't us. That, that didn't work. Um, we tried that. I thought if I went glamping, I'd be more interested. I still wasn't. It's, it's fun. I, I enjoy it. And, and like Drew and I went camping last fall. That was, that was fun. Okay. Some of you go camping. And have you ever been over to the store and you, you see a box that says it has a tent in it? And it says something like two to four person tent. And, and then you take it home. And you're like, who are these people? Who measures this? Well, then, then, so there's that tent, right? There's this little tiny place where you're thinking, this tent is for me and me only. Like, and then there's these other tents. You ever been in a really enormous tent like the size of this room? Um, several years ago at a church I was at, we were doing uh, what's called a Sportsman's Expo. It was a really great outreach opportunity. We had a bunch of people um, um, come in and... Uh, Randy, we, we spent a lot of time planning Sportsman's Expo. Uh, Rachel's Lisnick's dad is here, and we worked real hard on that. He was better at it than I was, but I just stood in the back and cheered. And, uh, and so we had this big Sportsman's Expo, and we'd have like, we'd have like 1,000, 1,500 people show up for a day, and we would do all sorts of things like sportsmen, hunting, fishing, all sorts of stuff. And at the end, we would, we would preach the gospel. And, uh, and we, we acquired this giant tent, literally probably about the length of this room and almost as wide, and we set it up, and it was in April, and we got this snowstorm overnight. And, and that giant tent had three main poles in the middle, and then a bunch of poles around the outside. And the three main poles, uh, the snow was coming in. It was, it was a real wet snow. And the three main poles were starting to get a pretty heavy bend in them. And so I had gone over that night and tried to help bring the tent down intentionally so it didn't come down in pieces. And so there's giant tents. And then there's these really small tents. And I wonder what sort of tent you picture when this word picture is given to us. Jesus tabernacled. Jesus tented with us. I want you to understand that there's this beautiful corporate picture in the tabernacle. Christ dwelling with us. I think our our Americanism, the only culture I know, sometimes causes us to think very independently. And Christ's arrival being the meeting place should not be thought of in terms of this is the place where I go to meet with God, but it should be thought of as this is the place where we go to meet with God. Now, certainly in Christ, individuals are meeting with God, and that is part of the blessing. But we shouldn't think exclusively that way, but rather this corporate language, he dwelt with us. This is why Christ is the one way, truth, life. This is why he is the one name given whereby men can be saved. Because he's the place where sinners can stand in reconciliation to God. I I would just say before I move away from this and talk about how he is grace and truth. There is no other place to meet with God than in the tent that is Jesus. There are places for you to think about God. There are places for you to maybe attempt in your flesh to try to ascend to God. But there is no place other than Jesus for you to sit down at the table with God in fellowship apart from Jesus Christ. And so if if you find yourself right now as I'm saying that thinking, 
boy, I've, I've tried a lot of things. I mean, I'm a good churchgoer, and I give, and I help people, and I do all these things. I want you to understand that anywhere outside of that tent that is Jesus, there is only eternal death. No matter what you've attempted, I would ask you, please, to be sensitive to the Scripture and the Spirit's work and know that you need Jesus, not anything else, ever. Okay? So if you've not yet looked to him to live, I I would beg you now, even while you sit there and I keep talking, to look to Jesus Christ alone in faith. Okay, the word becomes flesh and dwells, tabernacles, with sinful men. Number two, in the fullness of glory is grace and truth. Now, uh, you got about ten minutes of academic language coming, okay? It's what's coming. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't deny that. I can't get around it. It's just what's going to happen here. But I'm, I'm going to make the practical application of it, okay? So you're going to feel like for maybe the next 10 minutes, like, oh, boy, word studies and cross-references and what's the point? The point is really imperative to me as a pastor because you are inevitably going to continue to walk through a cursed and barren land called sin. And how will you persevere? Will you try to live by bread alone? Or would you be strengthened and nourished by the words that proceed from the mouth of God? Okay? So those words might sometimes feel really academic. I'm going to explain to you how it is that Christ, the Son, and the Father are grace and truth. And the reason I'm going to explain it to you is because I want you to survive the next battle of faithlessness, anger, discouragement, despair, frustration. So it's going to be academic for a reason, okay? The Bible says here, full of grace and truth. So I'm just taking these last five words from verse 14. And as as we look at these especially now at Christmas, I would invite you to delight yourself in God, not first for who God is to you, but delight yourself in God for who God is to God. God's first purposes are God purposes. And if that were true of anyone other than God, it would be selfish self-promoting, delusional, unhealthy. But because it is true of God, we find it to be completely right and appropriate. Altogether, it's good that God's first purposes are God. Okay? So let's delight ourselves in who God is to us, for sure. Took on flesh and dwells with us. That's wonderful. But let's delight ourselves even more in who God is to God. Okay? Full of grace and truth. This is weird grammar, all right? I told you we're going to get into grammar. It's going to be a little academic. John says he is the one and only son from the Father, comma, full of grace and truth. And it's, it's almost intentionally poor grammar. Who's full of grace and truth? The Father or the Son? Look at it. Look at the end of verse 14. He is the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father? Or the Son. And it's beautifully ambiguous 
Because the answer is both. Who is full of grace and truth? How do we know God? God sent the Son, and the Son came and dwelt among us. And we know God is grace and truth. Grace. Let's, let's look at these two words. These things throughout Scripture belong almost exclusively to God, grace and truth. Grace is one of the greatest Christian words, isn't it? How do we survive apart from grace? It means goodwill, kindness that is undeserved. Nowhere do we see more clearly that the grace of God is goodwill and kindness toward us than in Christ leaving glory and becoming the quintessential servant. Jesus servants better than anyone ever. Wow. Okay, let's, let's fight off humanity here for a little bit. Let's fight off our flesh for a little bit. Jesus left heaven. Again, again, I would draw your attention maybe this afternoon to John 17, high priestly prayer. Jesus basically prays, restore to me the glory that was yours with me and mine with you before I came. Sitting in glory. Angels praise him every day. And he takes on flesh and comes dwell with us with all of our weaknesses infirmities he's hungry he's sad he's tired he left all that to servant now put off your flesh because we think oh he came back from the dead like he got what Lazarus got like Lazarus was in heaven and then he came back so that's good for Jesus, right? Because we might think, we wouldn't, even, we wouldn't even say it if we tried to say it. We'd put our hand over our mouth, we'd feel bad we said it. But we would think, well, yeah, Jesus coming to earth is better than being in heaven. I told you you wouldn't say that out loud. But do we function like heaven's better than hell but earth is better than both of them. Okay, and again, we don't mean to say it, but we're kind of programmed to be comfortable with what we're familiar with. And we're not familiar with heaven. And so we have some trepidation about heaven. Like colorless, heart playing, floating on clouds. I'm not, I'm not digging that either. So we don't necessarily see the full grace of the eternal king descending to servant, leaving glory, grace and truth. Truth is so interwoven into Christ that in John 14, 6, he says, I am truth. Truth as John sees it, is basically something that can't be known apart from God. Pastor Josh spoke in his Sunday school class this morning about taking in the Word, just taking in the Word of God. 
And again, I'm going to point to John 17, 17. Jesus prays for you and for me that we would be sanctified by truth. The word is truth, he says. Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. So, okay, let's make some more connections here to grace and truth. In Exodus 33, 18, the story I told you before where Moses is like, these people are so bad. There's no way you're going to put up with this, okay? Moses says, in order for me to be confident you're not leaving us, show me your glory. Okay, now there's a little hint to the application I'm going to make at the end, okay? Grace and truth. Show us, Shekinah glory, tenting with us, who is God, what's Jesus like? All of that is pointing to his glory. Because when you're tempted next to think, the sin is better than what I'm waiting for. This thing or that thing is too much, I'm just going to shake my fist at God in anger. When you're tempted to think those things, what you need to ask is, God Show me your glory. Okay? That's what Moses asked. God, show me your glory. I think all this sinning we're doing is going to ruin us. So God, show me that you don't operate that way and leave us because of our problems. And show me your glory. And the Lord replies to him. So I'm in Exodus 33. You don't need to turn there. The Lord replies to him, I will make all my goodness pass in front of you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Okay. So he's in the wilderness and he's thinking, you're going to bail out. And he says, no. I'm the Lord. I show grace and mercy where I choose to show grace and mercy. Not on these stiff-necked people in the wilderness who don't deserve it. So Moses stands up on Mount Sinai, and we're told this. The Lord descends in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and said this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There are two words in Hebrew. Hesed and hemet. Hesed, gracious love. Hemet, faithful truth. The Lord gracious, and true. Those are the same two words John picks up on in John 1. The glory that had been revealed to Moses when Moses saw, literally, the afterglow of God. The Bible tells us that Moses' face was burned, was affected by the afterglow of where God's presence had just been. When the Bible says that that Moses saw his back, It literally means the word afterglow. Like, he just left here. And the fact that he had recently been here burned Moses' face. And John is pointing our attention back to Sinai, seeing God, and saying, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. 
In John's prologue, he says, we have seen his glory. Imagine the, imagine the questions. Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is all red, and the people say, what happened? We saw the cloud, we, we heard the thundering and the lightning, and now look at you. What happened? I saw the glory of God. And John says, remember all the stories your great-great-grandparents used to tell about Moses seeing the glory of God? That's Jesus. Let me just slide this across the table for you to chew on later. Did Moses see Jesus? In other words, this is for you later. Did Moses see the afterglow of Theophany, God the Father, Theos, or Christophany, God the Son, Christ? I don't know. But I love to think about the connection between John 1 and Exodus. In the prologue, once the identity of the word is grasped, the incarnation is seen in all of its revelation. Here's the problem. Up to this point, listen, up to this point, we might think, oh yeah, the glory of God is on Jesus. And everywhere Jesus went, all through Galilee, and he's doing all this stuff, and he's feeding people. And everywhere he went, there was this sort of illumination around his head. You ever see a picture of Jesus where his head's glowing? And we might think that. We might think, yeah, everyone who saw Jesus saw the glory. No. John 1. The light of the world came to his own, and his own received him not. What? With the glow? No glow. No glow. Uh, you want to know why? Okay, the tent. Look down. Look down to John 1. Look at verse 11. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But to all who did, believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those are those spiritual children born not of blood, God has no grandkids, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Later in John, in 644, there's going to be a group of people that really love what Jesus does, and they're going to take off when Jesus says uncomfortable things. And Jesus is going to say to his followers, listen, don't get worked up about that. None of those people receive me unless the Father draws them to me. He says it twice. He says it in 44 and again in 65. He says, I told you, those people don't come to me unless God draws them to me, because there's no illuminating circle around my head. They don't know they've seen the glory, unless the Spirit of God reveals it to them. So then we have verse 15. There's this parenthetical remark, and it does belong in parentheses. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This parenthesis 
grounds the glory that we're discussing in this one who is word become flesh. He came before me. How do we know God? Grace and truth. What is Christ like? Grace and truth. And here, I know it's academic. Cross-referencing back to the Old Testament. Talking about what is the definition of grace? What is the definition of truth? But I would tell you, fellow Christian, this is imperative to our joy surviving until the Lord comes. We are, we are the Israelites walking in the wilderness telling our soul, God can't do that. There's giants in the land. Doubting his faithfulness. Doubting his covenant love. We are those people. And we should say to God, I understand that you don't have any reason to put up with me. But when you show me your glory and I see that there is grace and truth, there is covenant and faithfulness, what shall separate me from the love of God? It is Christ Jesus who justifies. Yea, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And I know it seems academic, but I would just tell you pastorally, I want you to survive joyfully. And I'm convinced that the steadfast faithfulness, the grace and truth of God is essential to that. His dwelling among us means that we have this invitation to dwell in Him. Christians, we are all invited to Sabbath in the tent that is Jesus. What a great invitation. Come to me, all you who labor, you're heavy laden, you're trying to figure out how to balance the scale. Take my yoke, it's easy, the burden is light. Come Sabbath in the tent. Lawrence Hausman wrote this poem, and I want to give it to you before I'm done here. And I quote, Light looked down and beheld darkness. Thither will I go, said light. Peace looked down and beheld war. Thither will I go, said peace. Love looked down, beheld hatred. Thither will I go, said love. So came light and shone. So came peace and gave rest. So came love and brought life. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We finish in Philippians chapter 2. Please join me in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll look at the first five verses. What do we do with this cause of celebration? Celebration of Advent. Philippians 2.1 So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, 
any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That is, if there's any encouragement in Christ, let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also on the interest of others. If Advent is something you celebrate, take to heart the interest, the needs of others. And then verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, John 1, and the celebration of Christ's incarnation is not a call to look at Christ and say, wow, Christ is amazing. I should try to do better. The Advent, incarnation, the work of Christ, his serving, grace and truth, these are not invitations for you to see how you pale in comparison to Jesus. That is not the point. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. King Jesus has made us a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new. We are knit together in the gospel. We think of each other more highly than ourselves. We regard each other's burdens and issues because we have the mind of Christ living in us. In the tent, together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. How you keep revealing to us the majesty and the splendor that is the God-man. How many of us will have our joy built throughout this week as we celebrate the Advent? Because we're reminded by Your Word and the constant teaching of Your Spirit that in Christ we rest. In Him we sit at the table as Your adopted children, not with fear or concern that You'll exile us, but with confidence like a small child saying, Abba, Father. Not having the spirit of slavery, not having the spirit of fear, but as sons and daughters. Adoption. Lord, you've given us every reason to praise you, to worship you, to behold your glory and be content. And to know that godliness with contentment is our great gain. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's